so great to be back with you guys. Those of you who don't know, I was off for an extended period of time, but back today and grateful. I do want to say thanks to the, the faithful men who stood in this pulpit over the last five weeks and, and preached God's word faithfully. Pastor Kurt, Corey, uh, Pastor Moses twice, and Justin translating twice. And then, of course, uh, Dr. Tony Wolf, who was here last week. Aren't we so blessed by the, the men God's given us in this church and the friends he's given to our church? And we'll get Pastor Reuben back up here, or Brother Reuben Nick here one more time in the near future, uh, now that he's finished with COVID. Uh, didn't want him up here when he had COVID, right? Uh, but so grateful to be back with you today. Um, one of the conditions of our broken, fallen world is that typically... The closer you get to something, the more you notice what's wrong with it. You ever experienced that? Like from a distance, something can look really great, but the closer you get to it, the more evidences of decay, the more evidences of brokenness you see. I'm always amazed when I go into a bathroom that has one of those, like usually ladies have this, one of those makeup mirrors that magnify your face. When I get in them, like it's amazing how many wrinkles I see on my face that I didn't see. Uh, and looking in a normal mirror, it magnifies. The closer you get, the more you see that's wrong with it. A, a little while ago, Jordan and I were looking at homes in the Irving area, and we, we found one in the University Hills area, just north of here, that we really liked. And we're amazed that it was actually in our price range when we looked at the, the pictures online. Even when we arrived and looked at the house from the street, it still looked incredible. But the closer we got to the house, we began to notice some things wrong with it. You see, that area of Irving and a lot of places in Irving have significant foundation issues. Anybody testify to that? And as a result of that, you see the evidence of a collapsing foundation in the homes. As I walked to the front door, I noticed brick separating from the house as it had shifted over the years. When we stepped inside the house, as you walked over the floors, you could feel going up and going down on a level that was supposed to be level. It was very clear why this house was in our price range because a lot was wrong with it. From a distance, it looked great, but when you get close to it, to inspect it, to spend that kind of money on it, you started noticing a whole lot of things that were Wrong. A lot of things look great from a distance, but what happens when you get close? In the Gospel of Matthew, the Holy Spirit, the inspired words of Matthew, are taking us closer and closer to Jesus. And the expectation could be that the closer we get to Christ, because of everything that we've experienced in this world, that at some point we're going to find something wrong. That if we look hard enough, we're going to find fault. In Christ, because that's what we do in everything. And we hope for that at least a little bit in our hearts, because if there's a fault, we can dismiss him. We can, we can reject what he and the authority that God has given him says to us. We'll see that happening in our text today as people try to find fault in him, to, to dismiss what it is that he is saying the, the Pharisees and scribes have already begun to try to question his authority and his claim to be the son of God. And now the disciples of John the Baptist join in 
the conversation. But here's the thing about Jesus that makes him different than any person or anything that you've experienced in this world. The closer you get to him, you don't see his imperfection. The closer you get to him, the more you see his perfection. The closer you get to him, the more beautiful he becomes, the more faultless that he is. And in reality, it's our own faults that are exposed. In fact, it's those moments that we try to dismiss Jesus by finding fault in him that we see our greatest need for him. This morning, Jesus will be questioned once Again, the surprise of Jesus has now turned into suspicion, but the only thing that these questions will reveal are the condition of the hearts of those who ask them. But Jesus, being the merciful good God that he is, helps them and helps us understand once again our need for him. So let's look at the beauty of Christ displayed on the pages of scripture today in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Let's get close, friends, and let's see his goodness. Here's what the word of God says. Then the disciples of John came to him, Jesus, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, they don't fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. No one puts a a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine, it's put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Once again, our passage today begins in controversy. There are a lot of door watchers, as my friend Tony Wolf talked about last week, examining and critiquing Jesus and his ministry, looking for reasons to find fault with him. I don't know the full motivation of why the disciples of John make these comments. It's it's possible they're comparing their own leader to him and thus missing the whole point of his ministry, which was to point them to the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. But it's clear there's something in the ministry of Christ that they do not yet understand. This Jesus, he eats with tax collectors, we saw last week. Surely he's in danger of becoming unclean. And not only does he do that, he doesn't fast like we fast. Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Why aren't your disciples fasting? To ask the question a different way, they're asking, hey, as the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, if you are the, the Holy One of God, shouldn't you and shouldn't your disciples be more religious than the Pharisees and the disciples of John? Shouldn't you be more committed to fasting than, than anyone else? Because that's what holiness looks like, looks like, right? That's what holiness is, what we can see, what you do for the approval of others. Listen, fasting was a common practice in this time beyond just what was required in the law during the times of festival. 
They were fasts associated with a day of atonement and a new year. But even beyond what was required of the people of God, Pharisees and likely the disciples of John fasted every week, twice a week, usually on Mondays and Thursdays. This was what you did to show your religious commitment to God, not only obeying the law, but going over and above it, adding to it to show your devotion, your commitment to God in the hopes of earning his favor. They were the all-stars. They were the A-team and they showed it and their willingness to fast so much. So why not you, Jesus? Why not your disciples? Now listen, the disciples of Christ and Jesus himself, certainly they obeyed what the law required of them. They fasted when it was prescribed by God, but they're not doing these weekly ones that go above and beyond what the, the scripture had asked. And so Jesus answers the question of why in verse 15, and he uses a metaphor. What does he say here? Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. They don't fast. My disciples aren't fasting because they're in the midst of a God-ordained celebration. They're partaking in a wedding feast because the bride has received her groom. The promised bridegroom, the one to, who's come to rescue the people of God is here. This is a stunning statement that Jesus is making because in the Old Testament, Oftentimes, God refers to himself as the bridegroom and his people as the bride. We see an example in Isaiah 54. Verses five and six, listen to these words. I'm gonna go back to verse four for context. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. He's, he's speaking this in the midst of coming judgment. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. It's a pretty strong statement. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. One of the images that God gives for his redemptive work, his, his plan of rescue is that he will be like a groom coming and rescuing a bride who is left in despair. And Jesus says, I'm it. I'm it. I'm the groom. And I've come to rescue my bride. And these disciples, they know it and they're celebrating. They're celebrating this, this feast. See, weddings in this day, they were a full-on party. Some of you are getting ready to get married and you know how expensive it can be. You, you go in price, I gotta feed these people a full slate of fajitas. 20 bucks a person for one night. These, these weddings, they lasted seven days. Seven days full of food, wine. Ooh, Jared, grape juice, wine. <laughs> We're gonna get to the wine in a minute. The celebration, all the guests who were a part of this wedding for that seven days, they were freed from religious duties because they were celebrating. And Jesus says, hey, it's gonna last a little bit longer than a week. And as long as I'm here, they're not gonna be grieving. They're not gonna be mourning the loss of fellowship with God because God is with us and he's sitting at the table with them. They gotta celebrate what Jesus 
is doing and he is done. You can't help but be struck by the different conceptions of faithfulness to God that are presented in this text. On one uh, one side, you have a group who fast. On the other side, you have a group who feast. And it's because somewhere in the middle, one group got wind of the new work that God was doing in Christ, and one group had missed it. Jesus says, it's not my disciples who have missed it. See, these disciples of John the Baptist, the Pharisees, they fasted because of grief. They fasted over the grief of their sin and the separation that it caused between God and man. And they were longing for the moment when God would send the groom to come and rescue his people. They were waiting for a time where God would fulfill his promises. Everything that he had spoken to them. They were longing to begin that time of redemptive activity that they had been looking forward to throughout the Old Testament. And certainly over time, that longing began to start being mixed with elements of self-righteousness as they began to fast not just for the hope of something, but to also fast for the impression toward other people to show how religious they were. We saw that earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. But Jesus says, how can you grieve a separation that doesn't exist? And how can you long for something that has arrived? But then Jesus goes deeper, as he often does, and he begins speaking to the heart of these men who are looking and questioning and criticizing. He makes an even more important statement about religious practice in general and and the self-righteousness sometimes that can be attached to it. Not that that you misunderstand, but that you're condemning because of that misunderstanding. He talks about patching some clothes in verse 16 and he talks about some wineskins in verse 17. Let's look at those verses again. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth. And honestly, if you read from 15, it kind of feels like a jolting change in the conversation, right? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast. And then he starts talking about sewing. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch tears away from the garment and the tear is worse. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed but new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Jesus says, listen, if you're trying to fix some old cloth that's torn, you don't put new cloth that hasn't been shrunk onto it because what's gonna happen is that stronger new cloth at some point is gonna shrink and when it does, it's gonna pull the edges of that that old garment that was broken. It's gonna make the tear worse. You know this, right? You got a new pair of jeans, new shirt. It fits awesome and the first time you wash it, what happens? Either Christmas happened or it shrunk. You got bigger, it got smaller, right? More often we like to think that it got smaller, but it does happen. And so Jesus says, listen, this is what's happening right now. What I'm telling you about associated with fasting, it's not just that I'm, I'm patching up something that's broken. That wouldn't do. No, I'm doing something new. And then he talks about, wineskins, and I was so grateful because we're so familiar with wine and wineskins as Baptists, I knew that this illustration was gonna hit home for us. 
Apparently, people drink wine. And <laughs> apparently, uh, I, I'm not dismissing self-control and the need to be self-controlled, but okay. Let me just say that to save any emails, okay? Apparently, people would store this wine in animal skin containers during this time. And I know many of you do that as well. You have all kinds of animal skin containers at home. People would, you know, kill animals to eat them or sacrifice, and they would take the, the hide, they would tan it to get off all the impurities, and they would fashion it into a container. And then they would put newly formed wine into it to continue the fermenting process. Now, when wine ferments, it lets off a lot of gas. And so you have to have a container that's flexible in order to deal with the new reality of the wine on the inside as it grows and expands and becomes the wine that it's intended to be. If you have an old wine skin, it won't work because animal skin, when it's old, it becomes brittle and it will break. And if something's trying to expand and something that's brittle, those two things don't go together. Rather, new wine skin is needed for new wine. Now, what is Jesus saying with these metaphors? Because he's, he's doing more than just defending his disciples. He's doing more than just defending his ministry. He's making a statement about the work that he is doing and the need for something new. New religious expressions that reflect the new reality that is bringing about, being brought about by the work of Christ. New religious expressions appropriate for this new kingdom and the, the new king that rules over it. Religious expressions that are not built upon our work and our desire to impress God with our work, but rather built upon the work that Christ is doing. His righteousness, not our self-righteousness. Now listen, Jesus is not doing away with the old. We've already saw that. We've seen that. There was a purpose in the old. The old served a purpose for a reason, a season. The Old Testament was essential in preparing the way for this moment. Without the Old Testament, the, the sacrificial system, the festivals, the, the remembrances of the redemptive activity of God, the, the times of conquering and exile and return, without those moments, without all of those things that are recorded in the Old Testament, we would not fully understand what God was doing for us in Christ. But Jesus has come to fulfill those things not do away with them, to fulfill them, to be the, the realization of them. And in so doing, he makes the way for something new. There are essential things that will never change about the character and nature of God, but there are some things that must change as God's redemptive plan unfolds in space and time and new realities are unfolded as Christ comes on the scene. And as that happens, the people of God and the expressions of their worship must change in order to accommodate what it is that God has done. Think about all that's changed in light of the work of Christ. Why would we need to sacrifice lambs, cows, birds, when the Holy Lamb of God has already come and his blood has been shed? Why would we need the temple when God says, because of the purification that he has done in us from the work of Christ, the Spirit of God takes up residence in us. 
We're now a temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Why would we need to fast for something that has already arrived? Or grieve a separation that has been undone? Listen, all of these things were needed in redemptive history to help us understand, but now in Christ they have been fulfilled. And we must allow God to give us something new to show our devotion to him and to show our love for him and worship new sacrifices. It's not that we don't sacrifice anymore. It's different sacrifice, right? New forms of worship, new motivations for fasting because of what God has done. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your self-righteousness, it didn't get you anywhere. I've come to do something New. Your work, it doesn't get you there. My work gets you there. And whatever we do as an act of worship, an expression of our desire to obey and please God is a response to his work and the favor that he has given to us in Christ, not to earn it. Now, I want us to get close to Jesus. Do you see how Matthew is unfolding more and more of the reality of who Jesus is. This is really good, guys. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. I want you to to see how great Jesus is. Even as he challenges our misconceptions, he's telling us something incredible about what God is doing for us in Christ. I want you to see the perfection of Jesus. I want you to see his righteousness. And I want you to see the love of God for us to give his righteousness to us. I want you to hear me. Jesus has come to free you from the burden of religious practice. He's come to free you from the burden of self-righteousness. Or anybody, is anybody in this room, anyone, are, are you tired of trying to please God in your own strength? Is it wearying to you? Listen, I get tired of trying to please man Human beings, it's an exhausting thing to try to think about having to to please people I work with, please people I live with, which I fail at often, don't testify, Jordan. Please the church. And you have this burden upon you. You want want everybody to be happy and you want everybody to think that you're doing a good job. And it's it's an impossible task because you're never going to make everybody happy, Right? People will always be disappointed. Now, can you imagine that burden amplified when it comes to a holy and righteous God? If it's wearying to try to please man, how much more wearying is it to try to please God in our own strength? That's the burden of self-righteousness. That's the burden of you trying to achieve a right standing before our God. You're always wrestling with the question, how much is enough? How will I know that I've actually pleased him? And and if I do mess up, which I will inevitably do, how much will I lose as a result of it? I want you to hear me this morning. I don't care how much you fast. Jared, I fast two days a week. Excellent. You should fast. We're going to get into that in a minute. Jared, I, I, I fast three days a week. Jared, I fast every day. Hear me. Without Jesus, that won't only kill you spiritually, it will also kill you physically. 
I don't care how much you give up for Lent. I don't care how much money you give away or how many times you attend church, even in the midst of a pandemic. Your religious actions in your own strength will never be enough to please God. Never. You know what pleases God? His son. You know who pleases God? Jesus Christ. He is the son in whom God is well pleased. And here's the beauty of the gospel. The pleasure that God has for his son, for those of us who come under the blood and work of Jesus Christ, that pleasure is extended to us. Oh, that is some good news. It's not because of your obedience. It's because of the obedience of Jesus. This isn't man's actions plus Jesus's actions. It's the work of Christ alone that allows us to stand before a holy and righteous God. Do you see the beauty of Jesus? Do you see the perfection of Jesus and why it's so glorious? And do you see our own imperfection? Do you see why he had to come? We tend towards self-righteousness. We want to play a part in our salvation. We want to earn it so we can stand before God one day and say, hey, I deserve to get into heaven. The Bible has a different message, friends. We don't deserve God. We don't deserve heaven. We deserve eternal condemnation and a sinner's hell. But God, who is abundant in mercy, made us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, we have been saved. What's crazy is that even if we come to a moment in our life where we trust alone in Christ for salvation, we recognize that that we can't earn the favor of God, that that we need to come under the work of Christ in order to, to receive the favor that is rightly his, adopted as sons and daughters. Even if we've had that moment of salvation and this time of already not yet, still living in a broken world, if if we're not careful we can fall back into those old patterns of self-righteousness because we are bent towards self-righteousness. We will try to patch our old self. We will try to put the new wine of Christ in old wineskins and inevitably all it will do is cause a greater tear. All it will do is cause our spiritual lives to burst. We will be pulled apart and explode. We have to be careful, friends, to not only not trust in our self-righteousness to save us, but not fall back into those patterns. And here's the moment you know that you've done it. When you look at someone and you condemn them because you don't think they're acting as religiously as you are. when you begin to feel pride as you look at a brother or sister in Christ and say, man, I'm so glad I'm doing so much better than them. God must be so pleased with me and not pleased with them. Isn't it interesting how many times we as Christians who know the danger of self-righteousness fall back into self-righteous patterns and try to amplify our standing before God by our religious 
activities. If you don't worship in the same way I worship, if you don't raise your hands, or if you don't sit in reverence, you're not as good a Christian as I am. If you don't give in the way that I give, if you don't attend as many Bible studies as I attend, then you're not as faithful to God as I am. And we start building up our self-righteousness again, awaiting the moment where the old will conflict with the new. It causes needless separation among God's people and it's dangerous for the people of God. The disciples of John did not understand. They were still operating under an old system. Jesus is doing something new. Do you know that? Do you know that? Are you still trying to please God and your own self, hoping to work your way to him, earn favor with him? Or have you been wrecked by the reality that no matter what you do, it will never be enough? And thus you need to turn to Jesus. Have you fallen back into the pattern of self-righteousness that's showing up in the way that you interact with the people of God and others who are lost? Not coming from a place of humility, but of pride. Forgetting what it is that God has done for you. Let's think about some ways that we can respond this morning to what Jesus has spoken to us from the the vision of Christ and his perfection that that we see on the page here in Matthew chapter nine, that God's unveiling to us. How can we respond? What can we do as a people of God or anybody listening today? What can we do with what God has shown us? Firstly, you need to accept the finished work of Christ for salvation. I don't know who's here, I don't know who's listening online. Maybe this morning you are feeling the burden of trying to please God and you think you'll never be good enough. I got news for you, you won't. And you may be burdened with a history of sin and you think, Jared, if you knew me, if you got close to me, you would see that I'm uglier and dirtier and more wrinkled. I got bricks falling, my foundation is flawed. And there's nothing that God can do. That's a lie from the enemy. I want you to hear me this morning. No one is closer to you. No one knows you better than Jesus and he still wants you. He came for you. He wants to marry you. He's your your groom who's come to rescue you and take you home. It's good news. Listen, Jesus came to rescue you from the burden of self-righteousness. The Old Testament shows us the law is a standard that we cannot meet. Jesus met it. If you place your faith and trust in him, if you confess with your mouth that Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you will come under the favor of Of Jesus, you can be saved and you can receive the favor of God as a son or a daughter. Praise the Lord. We could not do anything. And he did it. 
Will you accept the finished work of Christ if you haven't already done that? Secondly, let's live in the finished work of Christ by walking in wisdom with fellow believers when it comes to religious practice. Let's make sure that just as self-righteousness has no part in our salvation, that we don't let self-righteousness creep back in to our church family, to our lives, to the way that we interact with one another. There's a saying that, that we use in kind of theology classes that I think could be appropriate for us to use in our lives here at church. Here's what it says. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. All right? In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. There are some things that will never change that are non-negotiable in terms of beliefs, right? God is the eternal creator of all things. He exists as one being in three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. He is sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, all those things. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, the God-man, second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, lived the perfect sinless life to die for us. He did that, was raised on the third day, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit comes, inhabits us, and leads us into truth, and guides us as the people of God to be unified and about the purposes of God. We're to take the the gospel to the ends of the earth. We're to be committed to his church. All those things are essential, right? Can we agree on those things? Those are non-negotiable things. But if you are a follower of Christ, you must believe. But there are also things that are not essential, that are secondary beliefs, secondary in terms of theology or conviction. Things like how the end times will unfold. There are a lot of really good people who trust and love the Bible, who believe it to be the inspired word of God, who disagree on the way things will happen at the end. They don't disagree that Christ will return. He will return. He's going to come for his bride, but the way he returns may be a little foggy. The gifts, the spiritual gifts, we may have difference of opinion about how many of them are active and how they should be utilized in worship. There, there are things that we can disagree on and yet still be unified. There's liberty in those moments. They're not essential, they're non-essential. But even as we have those discussions, we're to be charitable, right? Now, I want you to think, that's, that's a theological description. Let's think about practice, religious practice, because this is where it comes up, and this is what's addressed in our passage today. Hey, you don't fast the way that we do. Aren't you lesser than us, even though you're supposed to be greater than us? And so the, the practice became the barometer for religious faithfulness. It's, it's possible for us to fall back in those traps, So how do we apply this same structure to to what we do as the people of God? That's what we believe. Listen, there are essential things that we have to do as the people of God. We're called to pray, right? Regardless of of where you stand on the continuum of Christ, you are called to pray. You're called to, to teach the word of God, to preach the word of God. You're called to gather in worship. That's gonna be a very important conversation for us to have as COVID passes away, hopefully in the the very near future. The people of God are called to gather together. It's actually a non-negotiable kind of thing. 
We're called to make disciples. We're called to evangelize. We're called to unity. Those are essential things, practices that we must do. Pray, teach, gather, make disciples, evangelize, worship. But there is flexibility in the how, right? You may pray in the morning. You may pray at night. You may have a prayer closet. You may have a prayer journal. But the moment you say, you know, Kurt doesn't pray in the morning. He waits till lunchtime or something. I I just don't think he's as faithful as I am because I'm getting up early in the morning and I'm I'm giving my time to the Lord. So I I just don't think he's worthy of being a pastor or a worship leader because he doesn't pray in the morning. That sounds ridiculous, right? But how many times in our Christian life do we do things like that? There could be disagreement on some of these non-essential things. What time you gather on a Sunday morning? Is it 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, 5 o'clock? If you gather in one service or multiple services, those things are non-essential. There can be charitable disagreement over those things, but here's the problem. When those moments, the non-essential things, become essential in our mind as a way to prove that we are better than someone else. Friends, we've got to be on guard. Don't say, you don't worship the way that I do, or you don't like the music that I do, and therefore you're not as holy as I am. Don't say, you don't fast as much as I do, therefore you're not as holy as I am. Don't say, you don't, you don't pray the way or as eloquently as I pray, therefore you must not be as holy as I am. That's a dangerous path, friends, that doesn't build the humility that we're called to walk in according to Philippians 2. It builds self-righteousness. Walk in wisdom with fellow believers. Don't try to sew a, a new patch on old cloth. Don't try to pour new wine in an old wineskin. God has freed you from self-righteousness. Why on earth would you want to return? Finally, let's worship in a way that reflects the two comings of Christ. You see, we sit in a different position than the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees. We sit between the comings of Christ. We've seen the finished work of Jesus and we're awaiting his return. So our, our worship and our approach to worship, the, the way that we, we praise God is going to be a little bit different. We're going to have a, a mix of joy and longing. A mix of already and not yet. A mix of of the presence of God and separation from God. Because of the the season that we exist in as the people of God, it it changes the way we think about the work of God. You see, our fasting, and I want to talk about fasting specifically here because that's what our text talks about. And, And Jesus talks about it as if it's expected, right? So you talk about fasting, my but people aren't fasting right now, but they will. And that's what he says. He didn't say if they fast. He's, there's going to come a time when they fast. So I feel like I need to spend some time talking about fasting because Jesus did. Let me just ask this question. When's the last time you fasted? And not from like Game Boy or Facebook. Food. That your body actually needs to, to live and that you have a physical response to. When's the last time you did that? I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't think I've led us well here. I think we need to, to do more of this corporately, together. I, 
We're going to talk about that. We need to amplify our prayer life by fasting, calling out to God, but not for the same reasons that John the Baptist's disciples did, not for the same reasons the Pharisees did. Our, see, our longing is not for something new. The longing that we're expressing in fasting is not for something new, but rather the finishing of what God has started in Jesus. Let me just read this quote from John Piper in a sermon that he did on fasting in this passage that speaks to fasting, but also other expressions of worship. The yearning and longing and ache of the old fasting was not based on the glorious truth that the Messiah had come. The mourning over sin and the yearning and danger was not based on the great finished work of the Redeemer and the great revelation of himself and his grace in history. But now the bridegroom has come. And coming, he struck the decisive blow against sin and against Satan and against death. The great central decisive act of salvation for us today is past, not future. And on the basis of that past work of the bridegroom, nothing can ever be the same again. The wine is new. The blood is shed. The lamb is slain. The punishment of our sins is executed. Death is defeated. The bridegroom is risen. The spirit is sent. The wine is new. And the old fasting mindset is simply not adequate. What's new about the fasting is that it rests on all the finished work of the bridegroom. The yearning that we feel for revival or awakening or deliverance from corruption is not merely longing and aching. The first fruits of what we long for has already come. The down payment of what we yearn for is already paid. The fullness that we are longing for and fasting for has appeared in history and we have beheld his glory. It is not merely future. We have tasted the powers of the age to come. And our new fasting is not because we are hungry for something we have not tasted, but because the new wine of Christ's presence is so real and so satisfying. The newness of our fasting is this. Its intensity comes not because we have never tasted the wine of Christ's presence, but because we have tasted it so wonderfully by his spirit and cannot now be satisfied until the consummation of that joy arrives. We must have all he promised and as much now as possible. Some good stuff. What was old can't contain that. It didn't have that perspective. It doesn't have that, that past tenseness of the work of Christ. Our fasting, our praying, our worshiping, our work is not just an anticipation, but also in fulfillment. So when you pray, you pray in light of the reality that the battle has already been won. You pray in light of the reality that God has given you the first fruits of what he promised. Joy, peace, life, abundant life. And you ask God to give you more of it. To, to reject those things that steal it and give you more of it. Awaiting the day when all that we long for will be fully realized in Christ returns. Let's worship in that reality freeing ourselves from a limited perspective, longing for the things of this world. Let's recognize what Christ has done. Let's, let's heed the promise of what he will do. And let's worship in light of that. Fast, but not like the disciples of John. Fast like a disciple of Jesus. 
pray like a disciple of Jesus. You sing like a disciple of Jesus. You talk about the things of God with others who are lost like a disciple of Jesus. Confident, assured because of the finished work of Jesus. May we exalt God today for sending his perfect son. Let's get close. Let's see the beauty of Jesus, our need for him and rejoice that what we could not do, he has done. And let's not go back. Would you bow your heads, spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond to the preached word this morning? Do you know Jesus? Are you still trying to earn your place before him? If your answer is yes, then would you let Jesus remove that burden today? His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he's done the work. Would you sit in that finished work? Stop trying to put a patch over something you can't fix. Stop trying to to force something into an old system that won't work. Look at the work of Christ and step into that in repentance and belief and be saved. For those of us who are in Christ, do you find yourself drifting back towards self-righteousness? Is your obedience trying to, to please God and win the favor of others? Or is your obedience truly a response humble response to the work that God has done to please him and love him in light of the favor he's already given. Maybe there are moments where you've allowed self-righteousness and pride to creep back in your life and you start, you're feeling the fraying, you're feeling the tearing, you're feeling the cracks. Would you repent of that this morning? And just say, I... I want to get rid of that pride. I want to walk in humility like Christ. I want to be charitable toward others, especially in my family, my family of faith. And would you even now think about the longing that God has placed in you for eternal things, the life that he has promised that is yours that you know is yours because of the work of Christ and the guarantee of his spirit? Would you ask God, hey, I wanna, I wanna experience more of this now, as much of this as I can now, awaiting the day when I would experience in its fullness and worship you for all of eternity. Help me reject the things that steal that. Help me move toward the things that enhance it. Let's worship and live in that reality between the first and second coming of Christ and all that that means for us. And maybe you need to fast. There's some things in your life that are stealing your affection. There's some elements in your life where you're not feeling that joy. You need a breakthrough. You've been praying for something and you haven't seen it yet. Have you amplified those requests in fasting? Giving up something for a day, a morning, a meal? Spend time in prayer and allow the 
the ache of your stomach to reflect the ache of your spirit. Putting a physical marker on your desperation for God. Allow him to speak in faithfulness. Father, however we need to respond, would you lead us to? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and respond in singing.